You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here's your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema, and today I have a special guest, Johanna Vodkoviak. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Saul. So give us a little background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Poland and in Germany, actually. I lived in Poland for six years, and then I moved to Germany. But it was in the 80s when the, well, the wall in Berlin was still there. So the move wasn't that easy, but uh, we made it. My family relocated to Western Germany, now just Germany, (laughs) (laughs) and I relocated to the Netherlands by myself to, in order to study. And um, I have been here since then. Yes. You've become one of the finest scholars and I love your work on death rituals and the notions of symbolic immortality. How did your interest, yeah, how did your interest in this kind of study begin? Well, I think as I'm coming from a Polish background, death and death rituals are very much part of the Polish culture. So as a very young child, I visited graveyards and it was completely normal and it was part of the family tradition. And the dead were part of the family, I guess. Yeah. So... um, living in 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 a more western secularized context you see that some of that has been lost uh, the way we deal with with death and and rituals so what did you find that was uh getting lost from you know from what you remember from Poland to yes. now in yeah in the contemporary culture the sense of community and comfort that you can find in having a place where you can go with your emotions and your sadness and having a form that invites you to interact with the dead (laughs) in in what way in any way i mean all cultures have their own rituals and um yeah in a secularized context we we seem to lose that uh, coming together um, at special dates, making the time to go somewhere physically, <laughs> not only digitally, but actually moving, uh, going some somewhere and have some time to yeah, reflect on what is meaningful, what is important. The Western societies have become very much individualized and that makes grieving a lonely process Mm. Uh, for those who don't have a community and who don't participate in communal rituals and we don't have a language that much anymore how do you ask someone how is your grief doing so people can feel um, isolated and alone with their sadness and all these different emotions that they might be experiencing, which are part of human nature, which are part of us all. We will all experience grief at some point in our life. So it's something that it's fundamentally human 
that we are all sharing. So ritual is a way to put that into action to do something with that. Mm. You know, in your research, you said that there's a growing focus on the deceased identity, especially yes. in the Dutch culture. Could you explain more yes. about that? Yes, that really, that's absolutely true. That really comes from the idea that the Dutch society, such as other Western European societies and some other parts of the world, are becoming very much secularized, which means the role of of traditional religion is less prominent for some people. But the question then, is, but we still have death rituals. You have, there is not one culture in the world that doesn't have any death ritual. So also the secular people, also the atheists are burying or cremating their dead accompanied with some ritual. So what we see, what's happening then in these secular rituals, that people don't know how to negotiate an afterlife because secular does not mean atheistic. Mm. It does, it's not the same. Secular people can be very spiritual, can be very much believing in, an, in some form of an afterlife, or there might be some atheists also. So how do these people deal with the death of a loved one? And you see that they find comfort in the memories and the social identity of that person. So they use this these memories uh, in these death rituals to kind of create a narrative for that ritual. And you might say, yeah, well, that's again an example of an individualized ritual, which is absolutely the case. It's, it's, it's focusing on the unique aspects of a person, what was their life, what was meaningful in their life, what kind, yeah, what did, what kind of legacy are they leaving? But you see that people do experience a sense of togetherness, a sense of community during also such an individualized ritual. So the, it's the most important thing is to come together at a time and place and, yeah, uh, embody what uh, what you want to embody and in this in this case saying goodbye to a loved one what is the role of performance in this kind yeah. of death rituals very good question absolutely ritual is a performance but what does that mean i mean theater is also performance or playing music at a concert is also performance. So what does it mean that ritual is also a performance? Well, it's, it's kind of, uh, it refers to how do you do ritual? How do you conduct a ritual? And you conduct that with a specific attention. You have to focus and concentrate on what you are doing so don't just look at the watch or at your phone or something that's impossible 
So it asks you a specific focus attention. Rituals slow down our lives. They slow down everyday life and they slow down, well, they, they take up time. So when you perform a ritual, you have to perform it slowly, carefully, um, make take your time to, to say what you want to say. Don't just talk very fast. That that doesn't help the ritual. Yeah. And a performance also means that it's embodied. So you perform it with your whole body, your whole expression, um, body language, uh, use of your voice, um, use of sounds, of silence, of music, um, use of other senses. So performance means it's an embodied multi-vocal experience. Mm. Yes. How different is it, uh, the secular rituals and the religious rituals? Or is there a lot of similarity? There are similarities also. Yeah. The, the, the biggest difference is between a really traditional religious and a secular ritual is that the secular ritual has to be created. <laughs> because it's not, yes, it's not there yet. So the narrative of the ritual, the sometimes even actions are added, like, I don't know, uh, putting down flowers on the coffin or something, or the, the grandchildren drawing something on the coffin, which you see in the Netherlands. The Netherlands are quite creative when it comes to, to rituals. So in the secular ritual, you all, it's always made for that occasion. But there are also some similarities. Also, the, the, the secular ritual borrows a lot from religious ritual as well. There is a specific structure and script in the ritual. You don't start a funeral with saying goodbye to the coffin. No, that comes at the end. Hmm. That's the most important emotional moment for the family saying goodbye to their loved one the final time that you can see or connect with the deceased body often the case it's that it's in the coffin some other religions have maybe a cloth or something else so uh, it might be uh, not only the coffin but you see in the structure and in the script there are quite many similarities also what you see is that in a funeral ritual specifically you should address the realization of death so that mourners realize we are here to say goodbye to our loved one we are very sad about that but we have to realize this and you always move towards a kind of hopeful message and in a religious ritual that might be a connection to God, a higher power or an afterlife. And in the secular ritual, if you don't have that, if you don't have this, this transcendent dimension, mm. you often have the connection with the memory, with the loved one. You will not be forgotten. You will forever remain in our hearts. So you see a similar structure, yeah. but in the secular one, you have to figure it out what to say about the deceased loved one. Mm. 
Wow. I mean, as I hear you talk about this, I'm just uh, remembering about life in my culture in Africa. So we are ritualistic people. And in a sense, even when you're born in that culture, it's like the roles are already set for you from birth. All you have to do is to walk through it. But then, <laughs> but people leave that culture, leave that context and go into like the city or come to a different country. And then you have to, so you hold on to some of those things from your culture, but then you, you're open to new knowledge and you're open to doing something on the spot. I think there's a role in some form of a blended between secular and, and, and religious ways of, you know, coming with rituals that are much more meaningful uh, absolutely in in helping us not only remember but also deal with the grief and in the process yes. heal uh, from absolutely. the grief yeah and you've met absolutely and you've mentioned a very important task of ritual they structure our life they give they help us in moments where we have to find a new way a new orientation, they guide us through that. And in a secularized context, that is sometimes lost because you have to create it yourself. Yeah. So it's it's a bit more work and it can turn out beautifully, but it asks something from the people who the ritual is for. So that can be of attention sometimes, yes. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Berman. We continue our conversation with Joanna. In your writing, you said that even the people who are facing death they leave clues for their own funeral, sometimes even detailed instructions on how they want their last rituals to be performed. Does that happen a lot? <laughs> That's a good question. So, you know, in the Netherlands, a bit more than 70% of the Dutch are having a funeral insurance, which means you put away money for your funeral. But in the Netherlands, that is often not just about the money, but you can already select some wishes that you are having. So I don't know exactly how many of these 70% have really planned out their funeral. I guess not all of them. Mm. Um, but there seems to be a group of around 18% who are very proactive when it comes to their own death. So it's not the, the, the majority, absolutely not. But I think it's gaining attention and more interest. And in my studies, I found people who were very involved in that process, who very much planned their funerals in a lot of detail. Well, and you might say, well, that's really individualistic. Why are people doing this? Why are they planning this funeral that's not for them it's for the mourners yes but you know when you speak to mourners who have to deal with that to have to deal with these instructions especially in these secularized contexts mourners are glad that they have some 
guidance what to do. What I said earlier that you need some structure, some guidance. What should we do with this ritual when there is not a tradition? Yeah. So having a bit of a sense what the deceased would have liked, would have wanted, but it depends on the how. If you really leave instructions with no room for anything to be chosen anymore, it might feel a bit limited, but if you know this was my mom's favorite song or she loved these flowers or she wanted to travel the world and let's choose the symbol of, of a globe for her funeral card, this can be very beautiful. This can work very well as a kind of personal symbol in, in, this, in this secular funeral, but... It shouldn't be that the mourners have no, nothing to choose anymore. That would be, yeah, that would be a bit too much, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, because with hospice, I've had some people, you know, come to me as they're dying and say, at, at my funeral, when you're officiating my funeral, can you say these words? So it, in, in most cases, it's just about the message they want to pass on to their family. Uh, yes. But I've not had someone really... Uh, detail prepare the entire funeral ritual uh, so what is the motivation is it a sense of self-preservation or is it yes. just to make it easier for their family the the social aspect is very important people always say why are you doing this number one I don't want to bother my loved ones with it I don't want to bother my children so their motivation is social it's the relational aspect but what they they are also leaving themselves for the for a symbolic afterlife of course because yes they are creating an identity after their death we have i found death announcements where the deceased announces their own death <laughs> it's a strange sensation writing Dear loved ones, I am dead. I am not here anymore. What? Did, can uh, you come back? I've never heard that. So can you tell us more about that? Is that something new there? Yes, that's something new in the Netherlands. How it's, does it happen? Like somebody has a message already, you know, scribed. Yes. That the moment yes. I die, this is what you send to the... Yes. And then it's yes. saying, I, I am announcing my death. I'm... Yes. <laughs> Yes, or in the newspaper, for instance, or in the newspaper that it's announced that somebody, but this is not so much. These are really extreme examples. It's yeah. not that you open the newspaper and see this every week, Yeah. but I came across it during my, my research. So it does happen. Um, and yeah, you know, I think it also has to do, of course, with the culture and the Netherlands. It's It's very open to these kinds of things. So what is the meaning of identity and ritual actions in, in contemporary death, uh, Dutch death rituals? Yeah, the ritual identity is really important because yeah. the Dutch are a pluralistic society. You have different religions, different ideas of an afterlife, um, within families even, within cities, within families. So you have to establish, if you are creating a ritual, 
if whether it's a funeral or a memorial or something, what do these people believe? Hmm. And do they believe in an afterlife? Are they not sure what kind of afterlife? So you have to establish the ritual identity. Who are these people? Who who is this? Who is this ritual for? And if you, and sometimes you know, and sometimes you don't know. Yeah. You have to interview the people who the ritual is for. Um, and then you can think, okay, we have a group that's very diverse. How do we make this ritual inclusive? Then we come to the action. How, what kind of actions should be performed here? You, what we experiment with, I also do this with my students when we create rituals during, uh, during class, try to give an option. You can light a candle, but you don't have to, you know? How <laughs> does that work, you know? Give people a kind of option. Um, because some people might think, well, a, a candle feels very much Christian. Maybe from a Muslim or a Jewish background, you don't want to do that. So leave that op option to do that or not do that. Or maybe give another alternative to it. Sir. So, yeah, the identity and the actions are very much, uh, very much connected. Mm. Um, don't force people to do things they, they don't want to do in a ritual. That would be in, in these new rituals. Yes. In yeah. these newly creative rituals, you, you can't force people to do things because it won't work. It will only, yeah, it, it, it might even become a whole ritual mistake. So don't do that. And you also spoke, speak about the idea of the post self. How yes. do they view that in relation to death, dying, and the dying, uh, the morning rituals? Yeah, for for the dying person, the post self is interesting and of importance. The post self is about how much do I? It's about the legacy, also what you already talked about, the message. Yeah. What do I want to leave to? to this world that I'm leaving and people who come closer to death either because of old age through illness or yeah when they are confronted with their own death they start to think about their own post self what do I how do I want to be remembered by others and th this can sometimes lead to the feeling, oh, I still have unfinished business. I have to solve these things because um, I don't want to be remembered like that. So sometimes yeah. you see that, I don't know if that's also your experience in the hospice, but sometimes people want to forgive and yeah, on the deathbed so that they can finish finish this kind of unsolved relational issues maybe so people begin the death work so if there's issues yes. that needs to be forgiven Absolutely. if there's reconciliation that needs to be done Absolutely. so all those yes. things are done to 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 preserve a sense of a post self yes i think so yeah. and also for the moment so that at the moment you can be at peace a peaceful death is something that most people want. They want to die peacefully. And peacefully can mean 
physically not being in pain, but also psychologically and spiritually, what does it mean to be at peace? And these unfinished businesses are also one part of that, I guess. And sometimes it's unfinished business with God or yeah, some something else in your life. Yes. You're right. And there's a lot of that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because absolutely. I think uh, people seek for um, a sense of wholeness where you seek yes. to be at, if you're religious, you seek to be at peace with God, at peace with yourself, and then at peace with your community. Absolutely. And I think absolutely. once once we feel like we've attained that sense of wholeness, then we are ready to let go and absolutely. transition into the afterlife. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264. Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Joanna. You've done some work on, on the beginnings of life, both the beginnings and the endings of life. Uh, what do you find to be the embodied beginnings and endings? Ooh, good question. Um, yes, the, our birth and death are interconnected and um the question is well uh, when when do we start as a human being well we start in the body of another person so our embodied beginning starts in another person and that to me means that we humans are fundamentally relational from the beginning And in an individualized society, we seem to forget that. We seem to be focusing too much on the individual. While when we look at ourselves from the beginning, from our birth, from pregnancy and birth, we learn that we are interconnected to that person that gave us life, to our biological parents maybe, to the our ancestors that came before that, to maybe those caregivers who cared for us, who made possible for us to grow and to live, to maybe our grandparents. So the humans are relational. We come from another human being. So yes, we shouldn't forget about that. (laughs) And it seems that when you you look at the philosophy of death, A lot has been written about death as a very lonely process in many Western, I have to say, in many Western perspectives, that dying is a lonely process, only you can uh, face your own death. So I find that a contrast. While our birth acknowledges this relationality, this interconnectedness with others, our death from a Western perspective seems to focus on the loneliness. And I think, yeah, let's, let's, let's look at life and maybe at death from a birth perspective. 
mm. that we are very much interconnected. I find that kind of hopeful also. Looking at our death from our birth perspective, how is yes. it hopeful? Because when a baby is born, it's, uh, especially in the Western culture, normally there, there are some people supporting the pregnant mother or the family and the baby is born and there's a sense of joy. Yes. But in dying, sometimes people are dying in, in nursing homes and yes. alone, alone from community. So let's remember that we have to work on that community at the end also. And that's what I meant. We forget that, yeah. that, that we are relational beings. We forget about those people who die alone in nursing homes. And yeah. yes, um, let's remember our, our origin, where we are coming from, and that interconnectedness, not only with the people who were present, but the people who came before us, this kind of intergenerational mm. relationality. And yeah. death also brings that. And we, yeah, let's remember that. Let's not forget about that. I know that there's a lot of existential concerns at the end of life. Yeah. But you also spoke about some existential concerns at the start of life. What yes. does that look like? Well, of course, the baby can speak for themselves. So we can speak for the baby, but for those who are um, accompanying the baby to, to come into the world, there are many questions. Um, for instance, well, every human life, and I'm quoting now Hannah Arendt, the, the, the philosopher, every human life, every new human life means a new beginning. Every human is a new beginning and a new beginner, which means, according to Arendt, we are born to act in this world. We are born to initiate in this world. With our action, we initiate things in this world. So this also means lots of uncertainties. Hmm. Birth means lots of uncertainties. Who is this person? Will they be, will they look like me? Will they be totally different from me? Will they become a nice and kind person? We don't know that, but we kind of invest in that. We do our best and hope for the best. Yeah. But birth really means dealing with endless uncertainties of this new beginning, of this new person that's coming into our life. I like your idea of you know, the role of the community, you know, identity being rooted in community. A child is born in a family. Yes. Someone who is dying is deeply rooted in a family. What needs to be done, you know, to, to, to really strengthen the role of community in dying? I, that's a good question and a very important one. I think, you know, Changing an individualized society back into a collectivistic society, that won't be that easy. We can't just say now the community is there. But we can, for instance, um, you can bring back communal rituals and um, make people aware of 
Yeah, well, this, the, the importance of being there for one another. Um, and of course, you can't force families to be friends again. And um, yeah, but I think um, we, for instance, also on a more political level, things need to be done. There has to be room for grief and the room, for instance, when you are when you are at your work, it's not easy to take a day off to visit your dying, I don't know, relatives, or maybe you can take one day off and then you are back at work. So we as a society also in the work uh, space are not uh, giving room for that community also. So it's the lack of community is not only some a problem of the individual psyche. It's something that the society keeps intact also by not being able to 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 take grief leave or something yeah if, if you're if you have lost a loved one yeah you have to come back to work of course so so yeah. i think we have also on the societal level to think about that what do we need in order to establish to bring back community at the end of life yes mm. I like that. I think uh, we can be intentional in in our society. I mean, you can take off from work, you can talk to your work, and I think they will respect that. Uh, communal rituals, I've seen people actually love rituals, and people are always open to new rituals. You know, I find there's some sense of intrigue when it comes to rituals. So there's hope. Absolutely. There's absolutely <laughs> hope. And in the Netherlands, rituals are really new rituals are really gaining attention so people are moving back to the communal aspect of of life they are gathering together they are finding the time so there's absolutely hope in that yes it's been a blessing talking to you what are your final thoughts my final thoughts are so thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and I enjoyed it so much. Thank you and enough food for thought to study further and to think about it further. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. I think I can speak for myself and for our listeners. We've been blessed by your presence and for you sharing part of your wisdom and your research with us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was Joanna Vodkoviak. Thank you for listening. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.